please remain standing for uh, the reading of God's Word. Um, it's good to be back with you all after being away for a couple of weeks doing pulpit supplies. Uh, by the way, my name is not Brian McNeil, if uh, you're wondering. Anyways, because making fun of Cheyenne there. Uh, <laughs> Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians. We'll be reading verses 27 through 30. Uh, but before we turn there, let us go to the book of Job in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Job, chapter 1, we'll be reading verse 6 through 12. Job, chapter 1. Uh, beloved people of God, uh, this is God's holy, infallible, and abiding word. Uh, give your full attention to it. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let's turn now to Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but for your salvation and that from God. For it it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the Lord of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, Lord, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we might receive your word this morning. And so, O Lord our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in, in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, Paul is now on the move in his letter to the Philippians. He's moving from his own struggles to their struggles. Uh, Paul will soon address the struggle from within, within the church, 
But in our passage, Paul is addressing the struggles they have from without, the opposition uh, from the outside world. And so how should the Philippians live among those who oppose the gospel? Uh, This morning, I want to press home with a simple point to us, and it's this. Uh, Our life together should demonstrate the value and worth of the gospel of Christ. Our life together should demonstrate the value and worth of the gospel of Christ. I remember Paul wants to badly be with the Lord. Uh, But for their sake, for the Philippians' sake, and their progress, he's he's determined to come to them. Uh, Paul sums up what he wants their progress in the faith to look like. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So according to Paul, progress is when you value the gospel. It's when you reflect the worth of the good news of Christ. I mean, isn't that a great summary of the Christian life? When you truly and deeply believe the gospel, the Christian life will be a constant progress in that direction, a constant valuing and reflecting of the gospel. Because that's what we are called to do as Christians, to reflect more and more the gospel in our lives. In a way that says who Jesus is and what he has done is actually meaningful to us. Now, manner of life here is only one word in the Greek. It has to do with the way someone lives in a country or a kingdom. Uh, to be a good citizen in that place. Uh, the ESV has this footnote. So if you're using the Pew Bible, it has this as a footnote. Only behave as citizens worthy. That's what this manner of life is about. Uh, Paul will later go back to this theme uh, where he'll use the noun form of the word in Philippians 3 where he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you think about it, Paul's statement here is politically charged. uh, Because remember who the Philippians were. Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia. They were lifelong citizens of Rome. But now, Paul wants them to put their heavenly citizenship above their Roman one. Where the ruler is not Caesar, but Christ. And to put the ideals of God's kingdom over the greatest kingdom known to man at the time. This, friends, is a political subversion. It's insurrection, if you will. Uh, Can I just say how dangerous it is to equate God's kingdom with a political party or a particular country? Right? It's never safe to do that. God's kingdom is not Republican. It's not Democrat. It's not Libertarian or Green. And most of all, God's kingdom is not America or Palestine. Christ's kingdom is not of this world, he said. The kingdom for Paul is not on an earthly political line. So stop trying to undermine it by equating it with a worldly one. You cannot establish his kingdom with 
the kingdom of this world. Because the citizenship in this kingdom, in God's kingdom, is centered around the gospel. The gospel is what defines the boundary and nature of our citizenship. So if you want to know what a good citizen looks like in God's kingdom, then spend more time thinking about the gospel. And by the way, this is why you can't equate God's kingdom with an earthly one. Because none of them have this. None of them have the gospel. They fall short. It's to cheapen the gospel if we do so. And notice, to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ is a command. It's an imperative, not a suggestion. I don't know about you, but that is sobering. If we don't take it seriously, what it means to live in God's kingdom, uh, we should seriously doubt our faith. And please, uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you have to be a perfect citizen. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, because then God's kingdom would be, would be empty. But someone who doesn't care about the, the way they live, what kind of citizens they are in Jesus' kingdom, do not truly value the gospel. It doesn't mean there's no struggle, because there will be ongoing struggle. We will continue to struggle with sin and doubt, with faithlessness and uh, disobedience. But a perpetual indifference to living in a way that reflects the gospel, you know what that proves? That proves ourselves to be outside of the kingdom. That's why we have to take this seriously. We have to take seriously how to live as citizens in God's kingdom. And I want to point out something before we move on. Uh, when Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, your there is second person plural. plural. Uh, it's not simply an individual thing. It's collective. It's communal. It's corporate. So whatever only let your manner of life uh, be worthy of the gospel of Christ means, it's to be done together. Citizenship in the kingdom where Christ reigns only happens in community. Because you can't actually live a life worthy of the gospel apart from one another. Our citizenship is not a solo campaign. And this is why Paul uses words of togetherness and unity in our passage. And that's because that's the way we contend for the gospel. We are to stand firm in one spirit, Paul says. Uh, many commentators take this to mean as a common spirit of unity, uh, like it's a general disposition of the community as a whole. Uh, but I take it, uh, but I, I think it should be spirit with a capital S, the spirit, uh, because it has to do with our unity based on the one spirit of God. And I, I preached on this passage not too long ago, 1 Corinthians 12. Um, it uses the same phrase where Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized in one, in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
It is only through the Spirit can we stand firm together. We stand together and we strive together. Or as Paul puts it, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, the phrase standing, uh, I'm sorry, uh, striving side by side is actually where we get the word athlete from. You know, today we have sp- sports are filled with all kinds of safety regulations. I, mean, I think of the ongoing um, the ongoing safety regulation checks in the NFL. Uh, I don't know if you have Seahawks fans out, out there. Uh, rules are getting stricter and stricter uh, in the NFL. I'm not sure if you're allowed to tackle anybody anymore. Uh, but back then, it was a very brutal thing to be engaged in sport. Right? A sport was more like a battle. Uh, that's the sense that Paul has in mind here. We are to do battle together as citizens for the gospel. But of course, this battle is not about physical force. It's about exercising spiritual integrity together. And this, all of this is not abstract for Paul because he demonstrated this very thing to them with two of their own. We'll read about this in chapter 4, Euodia and Syntyche. He says this in Philippians 4, chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored, that's the same word here, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, Paul battled side by side with these women for the gospel. So he's not telling the Philippians something he hasn't already done or isn't currently doing. Uh, Paul wants us to essentially stand together and fight the good fight. And don't be afraid. Don't fear your adversaries, those who oppose you. Uh, These people were probably the ones that questioned the Philippians' allegiance to Rome. Uh, They're the same people that question you now, right? Are you like us? Do you value what we value? Or are you one of those Christians, those funny ones with funny rules? Those, these are the people who oppose the gospel. Paul says, it doesn't matter what they do to you. Don't be afraid of them. Uh, do you know what commandment appears the most in the Bible? The Bible commands us not to be afraid 365 times in the Bible. That's one for every day of the year. I mean, I wonder why that is. Uh, maybe it's because it's one of the most difficult things for us to do. Because not to fear means surrender. It means to let go of our sense of control, to give up our fear of man, and to trust God. It sounds easy, but it is incredibly difficult to put away our fear. Uh, Paul had a similar experience when uh, people opposed his preaching in Corinth. He was afraid what would happen to him. You know, preaching Christ meant persecution or even death. 
And Paul knew this personally. I remember Paul himself persecuted Christians. He put Christians to death. And now he is one. And so that made him afraid. But the Lord gave him the same encouragement that Paul is giving to the Philippians. Uh, Listen to what the Lord said to him in Acts 18. Do not be afraid, same thing, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. You see, God is with you. That is the answer to your fears when you fear man. And Paul believed that. He stopped fearing his adversaries and he continued to preach boldly. You know, when we stand for the gospel, when we aren't afraid of those who might ridicule and persecute us, something, something amazing happens. There's this double sign that shines through with our witness. For our adversaries, it becomes a sign of their destruction. It serves as a pointer of their ultimate ruin. And now I don't know exactly how it becomes a sign to them, but maybe through our courageous resistance, our courage to stand firm together in the gospel and not intimidated by them, then maybe they will begin to see that we belong to a better kingdom, a kingdom that will prevail throughout the ages, which means if God's kingdom prevails, theirs will not. But for us, it becomes the opposite sign, not of destruction, but of our salvation. But we shouldn't let this get into our heads like we're better than those uh, we oppose or who oppose us. Because it might be a sign of our salvation, but it's not of our own doing. It is a gift And that from God, Paul says. So we don't stand firm together because we're so much better. We do so so we can become a sign that God judges the wicked and he saves through the gospel. It all comes from God. This is why Paul follows up by saying, For for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Here's what I want us to see from that. Uh, This granting is not just about permission. God is not just letting you believe and suffer for Jesus. As if God signed a consent form or something. You know, that thing you sign when you let your, your kids go to a field trip. I think I'm going to know about that real soon. But no, it's not like that. It's much more than that. In the Greek, granting here means to give graciously. And so picture a gift freely being given to somebody. That's what it means. And this isn't really apparent in most of our English translations. And I had to go uh, digging for it um, to find a translation that gets closer at this meaning. But here's how the Lexham English Bible uh, translates verse 29. And I think it's very helpful. Because to you it has been graciously granted 
on behalf of Christ, and not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf. Uh, Paul uses the same word one other time in Philippians, in chapter 2. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, the same word, graciously granted the name that is above every name, speaking of Jesus So the name above every name wasn't just granted, allowed to Jesus. It was graciously given to him. And so in the same way, God is graciously granting us to believe and to suffer. It is a divine favor. You know, I think most of us have no trouble believing that faith is a gift. That it is a grace. That it doesn't come deep within us. I think most Reformed people believe that. Um, Paul makes the same point in Ephesians 2 where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. It's easy to believe that faith, faith is a gift. Well, at least I think so. But what about suffering? Is that a gift too? I want you to think about that very deeply. Because it changes everything. Marinate on that now and throughout your week. Suffering is a gift from God. If you're like me, you might be thinking, for real, Paul? (laughs) Suffering is evidence that God looks at me with favor? That is absolutely insane. And let's be real, that is so hard to believe. You'll need a new heart to believe it. And that's why the world can never accept it. I mean, aren't they always complaining? How can God be good if there's suffering in the world? Friends, That's the opposite of what Paul is telling us here. Suffering is not a sign that God is not good or unjust. Rather, it is a sign of His grace to us. Boom. Right? That is crazy. And listen, I'm not saying that suffering is good. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. But God uses it for our good. And I don't want to downplay suffering Excuse my, uh, my language, but suffering sucks. Suffering is painful. Suffering is miserable. But in and through it, God is granting us His grace. That is good news. You know, we read from Job earlier because Job was someone who got this personally. Job knew exactly what it means for suffering to be a gracious act On our behalf, you know, the adversary, the Satan, was allowed to afflict him. And just like our adversaries are allowed to afflict us at times. And Job's friends berated him for believing in God in the midst of his suffering. And all his possessions were taken away. But through all of his suffering, Job hung on by faith which turns out was a gift from God. 
And so we know that Job, Job received God's blessing. And not only because he received more than he had before at the very end, but more importantly, Job came to believe God in a much deeper way than he did before. There was a greater blessing than material possession. Here's what Job confesses at the end of the book. I know that you, O Lord, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, I think, I think we believe that. right? We are good Calvinists, I think. We believe that, that no good, you know, no good purpose of God can be thwarted. I think we believe that in our heads. But suffering, suffering pushes us to believe it in our hearts, past our heads, and into our hearts. That is what God is after in your suffering. He's not out to get you. God longs through your suffering to deepen your faith. Now, here's the thing. Your faith grows when you are weak, not when you are strong. So suffering is not something we ever outgrow. Because suffering is the place that we grow. And we never grow in our suffering apart from one another's suffering. Uh, That's why Paul says we share in the same struggles, same sufferings. He points out, we are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And Paul is using the sport imagery again. We're all on the same team, right? If one is struggling, then we all struggle. You can't win a game if you don't help out your teammates. Their struggle is our struggle. And I know I'm mixing metaphors a little bit. But as God's people, one citizen's burden is another citizen's burden. Bear one another's burdens, Paul says, Paul says elsewhere. That's what good citizens do. Uh, Do you believe that you're alone in your struggles? I think deep inside, we all believe that. At those moments, we tend to feel like we're on our own. That's why so many of us don't seek out help. But what does it say about our character when we don't ever seek help? When we think we don't need other people? When we don't think we don't need the body of believers. Let me tell you, it doesn't say we are meek or self-sufficient. When we don't seek the help of other citizens in the kingdom, it says we have a deep sense of pride in our hearts. I mean, even the Apostle Paul needed help while he was in prison. And the Philippians were happy to help him. But on the other side, do you provide help to those who are struggling? 
to those who are suffering. I mean, we are, after all, on the same team. And can I just say that you don't have to do big things to help people. If you want to help people in their deep struggle, in their deep suffering, then you have to start out somewhere. You have to start out with the so-called small things. Start by doing the dishes for your family. Pick up the laundry for your wife. Spend time with those who are lonely. Visit the sick. Because those are the starting points to helping somebody in their suffering. And you know, most of all, if you can't even do those things, be on your knees for people. Each and every one of us can be on our knees for one another. Jesus, of course, we bring it back to Jesus. Jesus is not only the king of God's kingdom, but he also lived as a perfect citizen in it. He stood unafraid against his adversaries. Jesus suffered the most horrific death. He was beaten raw. His skin was torn. You know what that says? It says our God is a God that suffers with us. He is not a distant God. And so Jesus knows intimately your suffering. That's why he can sympathize with you. And Jesus suffered for you, not only to bring you into the kingdom, but also to be a model for you of what a, what a good citizen in his kingdom looks like. I like the way Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who, judge, who judges justly. That is our Savior. Jesus came that we might know that there's grace in our suffering. And let me just close with this reflection this morning. What if we really believed that God is showing us his grace in our suffering? Suffering goes against all of our sensitivities because suffering is so anti-American. But in it, we learn something so profound that we otherwise can't learn. Suffering deepens our faith like nothing else will. Through our pain, we become better citizens of heaven. I like how C.S. Lewis um, puts it. Uh, who doesn't like a C.S. Lewis quote, right? God who foresaw your tribulation, your pain, your suffering, has especially armed you to go through it. 
not without pain, but without stain. God is with you. It doesn't mean the pain will disappear, but holiness, holiness can begin to appear in our suffering. I don't know about you, but I love food, right? You might not believe me because I'm skin and bones, I'm so skinny, but I do love food. I love food from every country. My home country has adobo. Um, If you've never had it, come over to our house, I'll cook it for you, it's so good. I love that stuff, I grew up with it. America has apple pie, Scotland has haggis, well, maybe not haggis, I, I, I don't know if I want to try haggis, Mexico has tacos, Italy has pizza, Japan has sushi. Do you know what God's kingdom has? It's not fancy, it's simple bread and wine to remind you what the kingdom of heaven is all about. It's about a king. About a king who suffered on behalf of his people. That on the cross, Jesus, his body was broken and his blood was shed for you. And through his suffering, you are a recipient of extravagant grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, I'd like to invite the elders and Pastor Brett to come, that we may partake of this meal together. Let us pray. Our Father, full of compassion and abounding in loving kindness, there is none like you. You're the maker of heaven and earth. You grant to us all good things in Christ. We ask that you would continue to work by your word and spirit in the midst of our even busy weeks ahead. Give us the grace to remember that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to you, our Savior. O Lord, remind us that you call us to live not for ourselves, but for the sake of you and others. Help us to reflect him, the King of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.